Everyone needs an estate plan. That's why FindLaw worked with lawyers from across the country and employed Thomson Reuters' industry-leading form automation technology to create affordable, customizable, do-it-yourself estate planning documents. Forms available include a last will and testament, healthcare directive and living will, and financial power of attorney. You can purchase a form individually, or you can bundle all three for a 10% discount. Both individual and couples packages are available. FindLaw's estate planning forms are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can update your finished estate plan for free for up to a year after purchase. There is no time like the present to start estate planning and get peace of mind, especially when you can do it from the comfort of home and at a fraction of the cost of going to an attorney. To get started, head to findlaw.com, and at the top of the page, click on Legal Forms and Services. Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Andy Leonetti. Hi, Laura. Hi, Andy. And we have Baby Metha. Hey, Laura. Hi. I'm surprised you haven't already launched into your NPR voice like last time y'all talked about the First Amendment. (laughs) I know. Yeah, before we started recording, I was talking about whether or not I have an NPR voice or a millennial podcaster voice, and I have a feeling it's the latter, so hopefully our listeners enjoy that. But yeah, we have a very interesting topic today. We're talking about the First Amendment, specifically free speech, which is a really interesting area of law because it's somehow both very straightforward and also very complex. Yeah. The text of the free speech portion of the First Amendment is pretty straightforward. It's Congress shall make no law abridging free speech. Cool. But it leaves a lot open. What is speech? Who does the First Amendment apply to? Facebook, Twitter. you're there. (laughs) Snapchat? Does it apply to Snapchat? I was just holding my breath. For Andy to wake us up with his <laughs> folks. It's true. We, we haven't, yeah, we haven't had a folks in a while. Um, so I guess, yeah, just a quick reminder, folks, as we talked about in our previous episode, the First Amendment does not apply to private platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. I got kicked off my friend's private message board. <laughs> Can I sue? No, uh, but it's not just the capital G government that is prohibited from regulating speech. As I will talk about later, public universities are a very common example of places where free speech issues come up. So yeah, today we're going to talk about a few recent examples of free speech issues, including the legal doctrines of overbreadth, vagueness, and the difference between content neutral and content based restrictions on speech. I'm so stoked again to be talking about my least favorite culture war battle. (laughs) I don't think First Amendment is boring. Somehow Laura made basically an audition tape for sleep stories last time we talked about this because we thought we'd put our listeners to sleep. Did you send that? To the folks over at Com, no, I should. I feel like though. you're missing out on a side hustle. Well, the problem is with those sleep stories, you have to be able to hold that voice for like an hour and a half, and I can't do that. I start, I start laughing. I'm not that good of an actor, so. But yeah, the First Amendment is really interesting. There's a lot to dig into, so. I guess on that note, Baby, do you want to kick us off with... Yeah, content neutrality, a a principle that encompasses, uh, that's implicated in in multiple cases that we're talking about today. So I'll start off with, what is it? What is content neutrality? I mean, it is what it sounds like. If you've heard of the concept of net neutrality, it's not that different in its philosophy. But instead of talking about just the internet, which would be largely regulated by the Federal Communications Commission, we're talking more broadly, any kind of communication in any form or forum. Can I ask a question? Is it similar 
to net neutrality in that everyone thinks it applies to their chosen beliefs with how things should work, <laughs> but then they're usually always hilariously wrong. Uh, isn't that the funny thing with a lot of constitutional principles? You can like stretch it for or against you. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be an argument either way, but that's one of the things that makes the First Amendment analysis both frustrating and kind of fun is that there's there's a lot of different rules and it's all spectrum. It's not very black and white. And so you have several different standards depending on what type of restriction the government is trying to place on speech. And we'll see that. We'll see that in these cases. So to start off, content neutrality is a principle that the Supreme Court has established as a critical inquiry into the determination of whether a given law that tries to regulate speech whether that law is constitutional or not. So say a state wants to pass a law that has the effect of restricting speech. Well, if someone from that state, like a citizen, brings a challenge in court saying, hey, my state can't do this to me, this law is unconstitutional. Well, the courts are usually going to start with asking, is that law content neutral or content based? A law is content based if the application of the law would depend on the message of the speech, meaning the subject matter or the viewpoint expressed. The government that's making the law has to be neutral as to both the subject matter and the viewpoint expressed in order to be considered content neutral. So the viewpoint requirement is pretty obvious. Let's say during the Vietnam War or, oh gosh, we don't have to go back that far. Okay, let's make it current. Imagine St. Louis, where you are, Andy, wants to avoid people taking to the streets about Russia. So St. Louis thinks that people are going to start protesting that we should intervene on behalf of Ukraine. So the city passes a law banning anti-Russia protests on St. Louis streets and parks and public grounds. That's a viewpoint-based law because it bans anti-Russia speech, but not pro-Russia speech. So that one seems pretty obvious. It's not content neutral. But it doesn't even matter if St. Louis added on an equivalent ban for pro-Russia speech. Let's say they were fair to both sides and just did a blanket ban on all Russia-Ukraine related speech. That sounds more neutral because it's viewpoint neutral, but it's not subject matter neutral because it still targets a particular subject matter, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and thus that would still not be considered content neutral. I have such internet brain that when you kept saying content based i just kept wanting to say we don't mean based in the way that every like internet dirt bag uses it now and so on social media <laughs> see i wouldn't even have thought of that because i'm so not on social media this is why we have you around so then you might ask okay well what's an example of fully content neutral restrictions on speech well one catch-all category that comes up a lot in like SCOTUS cases, uh, is this time, place, and manner restrictions. Mm -hmm. So these come in many forms. Examples would be noise limits, capping the number of protesters at an event, time restrictions, like you can't protest early morning or late at night, and restricting the size or placement of signs on government property. Most of these kinds of laws tend to be fine and deemed content neutral. But the case isn't closed with just the content neutrality question. So it's not like just because a regulation is content-based that the government can't impose it. That's just the first question. And it's used to determine the standard under which the core constitutional question is analyzed. So what do I mean by standards? Well, do y'all remember levels of scrutiny? No. 
<laughs> it's <laughs> this is going to turn into like studying for the bar corner real quick because yep. yeah, we have to talk about the different standards of scrutiny for constitutional constitutional law cases. <laughs> I'll keep it short. Scrutiny sounds so ominous. Um, So courts use different levels of scrutiny to determine if a government regulation can be held up, basically. So for our purposes, let's keep it short. As the names imply, strict scrutiny is a tougher standard, meaning the government has to show that the law is narrowly tailored to serve compelling state interests, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas to survive intermediate scrutiny, the government only has to show that it's narrowly tailored to serve a significant government interest. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The most frustrating thing for me when I was in con law was trying to figure out what what do these words Mm -hmm. mean? Because Mm -hmm. they in 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 any other context, compelling and significant would basically mean the same thing. That's why you got case law to to give lots and lots of examples of what's compelling versus what's significant. Mm -hmm. That's why you got to read a bunch of case law. But point is, one is higher than the other. And if you're deemed content, if your law is deemed content neutral, then you only have to satisfy this lower standard of intermediate scrutiny and show that there's a significant state interest. If it's deemed content based, then you have to satisfy this higher standard. The government has to satisfy it of strict scrutiny and, and show that it's a compelling state interests, which is apparently higher than significant. Well, and the, and the strict scrutiny standard is really, really hard to beat. I think it was mm-hmm. Justice Souter mm-hmm. wrote in a dissent that strict scrutiny leaves few survivors. And that's very true. Like, it's, yeah. it is incredibly hard for the government to overcome that standard when it comes to free speech. Based David Souter. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't even, truthfully, I don't even know what that means. It's in the the ver- same vernacular of the, uh, like, blank-pilled, you know, type terminology. Oh, dudes okay. who are, like, red-pilled or blue-pilled oh, or okay. black-pilled and uh-huh. all that kind of stuff. So, like, uh. based Andy Leonetti would come on this podcast and, and say that podcasting is stupid and the lowest <laughs> form of media consumption <laughs> there is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for keeping us hip with the with the Reddit times, Andy. Okay, so fun fact on history. The Supreme Court initially, like the inceptions of this whole neutrality principle, like 50 years ago, justified the content neutrality d- distinction under actually equal protection principles under the 14th Amendment, not the first. Well, not just the first. Uh, they said that it violated equal protection because it treated, for example, someone picketing Something differently from other people picketing something. We'll note that analyzing free speech under equal protection stopped being a thing pretty quickly, which is why you don't hear about it much today in First Amendment cases. But what did remain strong to this day is using the principle of content neutrality as a touchstone. And that's why you'll see it come up in more than one of the cases that we're talking about today. I was going to ask, so how, I guess, why content neutrality now? How has this come up recently? Yeah, let's talk about some current cases. One of them is Reagan v. City of Austin. So in that case, the city of Austin, like other cities, gets to regulate signs and billboards. And if you have like a regular sign outside your brick and mortar business store, that's what's called an on-premise sign. So this could be the golden arches outside of McDonald's, or it could Mm -hmm. be the banners outside the MECEDs advertising the latest McHeart attack. And that's all fine under one type of ad regulation. Hey, I like the McHeart attack. (laughs) So, but when, when these like McRib ads, the same ad is far enough away from the restaurant itself, 
so think billboards, that's regulated differently. That's considered an off-premise advertisement. And this may seem like a silly distinction, but think about where you see the majority of certain ads. Now that we don't watch TV on TV anymore and we can skip ads, um, think about where you see the majority of certain ads like McDonald's or, or Cracker Barrel, not necessarily at the restaurant or even at TV, but removed from it on the highway, right? Yeah. So. Same for all kinds of other businesses, from random local tchotchkes to personal injury attorneys. Or adult entertainment. <clears throat> that too, yeah. exactly. Although that brings on other... <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different line of cases, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, the city of Austin had a code that prohibited the construction of new off-premise signs, a.k.a. billboards, while it allowed existing signs like that to be grandfathered in so long as they didn't alter them, including that they couldn't digitize them. Okay. So, you know, digitizing a billboard makes it easier to change the ads and have them updated every few seconds, so a lot of companies want to do this. On-premise signs at the, you know, non-billboards, like at the storefront itself, they weren't restricted from digitizing. So a couple of companies in Austin, including the defendants, Reagan, wanted to digitize their existing billboards, and the city wouldn't let them under this law. So companies sued the city claiming that this law was unconstitutional because it impermissibly restricted their freedom of speech under the First Amendment. And a federal court of appeals ruled in the company's favor because it found the on-off premise distinction to be facially content-based because, and, and this is their reasoning, a government official had to read a sign's message to determine whether the sign was off-premises or not. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. we'll get into that later. I know, Laura's skeptical eyes. <laughs> the Supreme Court disagreed because, you know, I, that sounds pretty silly to us. The Supreme Court did acknowledge that, yeah, enforcing the city's law requires reading a billboard to determine whether it directs readers to the property on which it stands or to some other off-site location. Mm -hmm. But the law doesn't single out any topic or subject matter for differential treatment. So a sign's substantive message itself is irrelevant. A given sign is treated differently, like only based on whether it's located on the same premise as the thing being discussed or not. And SCOTUS said in their opinion, quote, the message on the sign matters only to the extent that it informs the sign's relative location. The on-off premise distinction is therefore similar to ordinary time, place, or manner restrictions. Unquote. So Gotis rule that the law was facially content neutral. What do I mean by facially content neutral? So it seems to be content neutral, but if there is evidence that there is an impermissible purpose or justification that underpins what seems to be a content neutral restriction, that restriction can still be deemed content based. And then secondly, the lower courts didn't answer the question of scrutiny. So, you know, we still got to say like, okay, Fine, it's content neutral. Maybe even if it's content neutral, is the law narrowly tailored enough to serve a significant government interest? So those questions were sent back on remand, but basically seems to be a regular old time, place, manner restriction in the case of in the case of these billboards. Whoa. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a lot. I will shut up for the rest of the podcast. We could do a four and a half hour podcast on this. Dear God, please no. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Don't worry. Hey, I read 50 pages of an opinion and I tried to keep it contained into that time. <laughs> no, you did. That, was, that was a good summary of it. And, and it's a good uh, sort of the, the case that I'm talking about is kind of the flip side of this idea where it is a sort of a facially content-based 
regulations. So in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, a panel recently ruled that two policies used by the University of Central Florida likely violate the First Amendment. And so before I like dig into the case, there's a couple procedural things that I want to get out of the way. There are two policies at play in this lawsuit. One prohibits what the university is calling discriminatory harassment, and the other addresses bias-related incidents. Due to a procedural issue, the, the 11th Circuit only examined the discriminatory harassment policy, and that's because the district court concluded that the group that calls itself Speech First Incorporated, which is representing several students in this case, the district court concluded that they didn't have standing to challenge this policy because the on-campus group that carried out those policies couldn't take any punitive measures against the students. So it didn't really address the merits of that claim. So it's going to be sent back on remand to talk about that. The one that really got dug into, sort of, (laughs) is the discriminatory harassment policy. And I say sort of because another thing to keep in mind is that this case is currently being examined on a motion for a preliminary injunction. Hmm. So the analysis is a little different than what you'd typically see, especially if you're studying for the bar. I see you. You're starting in a couple weeks. You're going to be okay. I promise. Not me. Not you. Rub it <laughs> I mean, in, Not Andy. me ever again. I passed it. I passed it on the first try. I'm never taking it again. It was awful. I'm just, I wanted to, <laughs> I knew that the bar exam was going to be intense when I walked in and realized that they had a nurse oh, on standby at the building because people like, I guess it's fairly common for people to physically get sick during this exam. It is insane. I could rant about the bar exam all day, but I won't. So I guess all of this to say that (laughs) I got sidetracked, but I found my way back. All of this to say the case that I'm talking about here is by no means over. And there is a chance that this policy that the, the university has come up with, which I think we can probably all agree is has good intentions. They're trying to prevent people from yeah, being discriminated against on campus or being having things said to them that are offensive. We can probably agree that that's a, a laudable goal. However, the 11th Circuit decided that at the way it stands now, it is likely too broad. So the case focuses on three students who say that they want to be able to express their views against things like abortion, gay marriage, affirmative action, immigration, mm-hmm. the list goes on. But they say that they can't fully express themselves or talk about these topics on campus because they fear repercussions under this discriminatory harassment policy, which the university defines as, let's see, it's very long, (laughs) uh, verbal, physical, electronic, or other conduct based upon an individual's race, color, ethnicity, national origin, religion, age, genetic information, including gender identity or sexual orientation, physical or mental disability, political affiliations. Got to cover all your bases, huh? I know. It's, and I, don't, I think there were even a couple that I, that I didn't, that I missed. <laughs> so it's basically any speech or behavior connected to another person's identity, I guess is a good way to sum it up, that interferes with this other person's ability to participate in school programs to the point that it creates a hostile environment. And the the policy states that this prohibited speech can take many forms, including verbal acts, name calling, written statements, signs, whatever. And interestingly, it also prohibits students from condoning, encouraging, or even failing to intervene when they see something like this happening. Wait, it prohibits students from failing to intervene? Yeah, so it's almost a, it's, well, you could go back and listen to me and Andy talk about Seinfeld, where I talk about Good Samaritan laws. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, it creates a duty to intervene. Oh, wow. Which is also interesting. And so, as Andy's face on camera is telling me. I know. This is very, very, (laughs) very broad. 
This is Grand Canyon broad. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's very, very broad. So I have no doubt that this is going to get sent back and the university is going to have to um, going to have to revise it. The like, we're so par we're so paranoid by like cancel yeah. culture arguments that we're going to ban anyone saying anything negative to mm -hmm. anyone else. And create an affirmative <laughs> yep. duty yeah. and, and have consequences if you fail to satisfy mm -hmm. that duty. That's, that's, that's a little far. The lower court on a motion for a preliminary injunction, which I guess just a little bit of a little nugget on preliminary injunctions. That just means that one side is saying, we need for this to be put on hold while we fully litigate this case because there's going to be some form of irreversible damage that will happen. Students are going to be impacted by this while we litigate it, so please don't let them use it, is essentially what the injunction is asking for. So the lower court actually held that the policy could only be read to reach unprotected conduct and that students couldn't reasonably believe that they would be punished for expressing unpopular opinions. So as we've just been talking about, that's probably not true with how broad this is written. But it does bring up an important point where free speech rights are not absolute. There are some types of speech that the Supreme Court has deemed outside of First Amendment protection. Mm -hmm. And some of those would definitely fit into a policy like this. One of them is known as fighting words, which mm -hmm. has always made me laugh. <laughs> I don't know why. I know that violence is not funny, but I just always think like them's fighting words. You know what I mean? Like Yosemite Sam would say, yeah, <laughs> yeah them's fighting exactly. words. That's what I always think of in, in my head. And so this comes from a, a Supreme Court decision from the 40s called Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, where the court concluded that Words that have a direct tendency to provoke other people to violence are not protected by the per by the First Amendment. So these are like personally abusive epithets. In Chaplinsky's case, he called the town marshal a damn fascist. Yeah. The, it's a good example because it shows why since that case, there have been many more cases where the court finds speech to not be fighting words than they do find things to be so offensive that they're outside of First Amendment protection because... And in 2022... Exactly. One well, things change. Exactly. As mm -hmm. as we... Yeah, you can call your alderman a damn exactly. fascist now if yeah. you want yeah. to. <laughs> so, yeah, it all kind of depends on what people say in the modern parlance. And so, the, mm -hmm. yeah, the same with obscenity. It's technically not protected, but no one seems to know or, frankly, care that much about what it actually means. I was just going to say, is this get back to that whole, like, I know it when I hear it type thing? I was just about to say, yeah, I was just about to say pornography. Where, yeah, mm -hmm. one of the Supreme Court, Court justices famously said, I, I couldn't define it, but I know it when I see it. And it's like, well, no <laughs> I'm going to have to bleep myself now, but that's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I bring this up because I do think that that sort of definition could probably be used in this university policy as a way to regulate offensive speech or things that are likely going it's to be case yeah, by it's case, create it's, a hostile environment, yeah. but without stepping on the First Amendment. Uh, another example is inciting speech, which I won't say why. People have talked about inciting speech post January 6th, 2021, and that's all I'll say about oh. that. <laughs> but so we've had a what couple different then? tests. Oh yeah. Exactly. Like I said, I don't I've already wasted an episode on that, so I'm not gonna do it again. <laughs> But we have the clear and present danger test from Schenck versus United States. And this was World War One. The court held that although the government can't abridge free speech, the question is the question in every case is whether the words used and the circumstances are of such a nature that it creates a clear and present danger that they will bring about whatever the bad thing is that Congress is trying to prevent. So this is what Vaid he's talking about with yelling fire in a crowded theater. 
Yelling fire. We, we don't want yeah. people to do that because it will cause something immediately bad to happen. And that's just so context dependent. Like, if are you in a war? You know, are you? what's the political situation right now? We tend to sleep on Woodrow Wilson's authoritarian impulses. Right. And <laughs> I'm glad you guys brought that up because an important factor in that case was that the country was at war. And time and time again, we see the Supreme Court uphold actions taken by the government that seem to abridge free speech during wartime. That does come up a lot. The clear and present danger test isn't really used anymore. It was replaced by the imminent lawless action standard created in 1969 in Brandenburg versus Ohio. The court basically just revised this rule on inciting speech that we're only going to prohibit or I guess prosecute speech that calls for imminent lawless action and is likely to have that effect. So how is how is imminent lawless action different from the inciting action standard? It's still known as the inciting speech standard. It's the it's really the imminence factor where so like in the in Shank versus United States, the clear and present danger test came from a situation where people were printing and mailing out pamphlets telling people to refuse the military draft. Yeah. So it's this kind of mm-hmm. thing where it lacks that imminence factor where You're telling Mm -hmm. people to do something, but you're not necessarily telling them when to do it or how. Whereas, yeah, Brandenburg, it's a very in the moment, like I'm standing here and I'm telling Andy to go, you know, do something crazy. And there's plenty of other ones that come up. There's true threats, um, hostile audiences, which those are both doctrines that come up occasionally, but not very much, especially in modern years. So in, in this particular case, the when it was appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, the holding was that the university's discriminatory harassment policy was overbroad and unconstitutionally regulates both content and viewpoint, getting back to what he was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And they point to the fact that the policy puts determining what constitutes this harassment in the university's hands. By its own terms, the policy should be read broadly and the list of factors that the university can use to look at a particular situation that's been reported is not exhaustive. It covers... Any behavior or action, even even if, and it even says this, even if both legal and unintentional. It sounds like they made it broad, intending to cover all bases with good intentions of like protecting more people, but it bit them in the butt. Yeah. And well, and it was interesting because at, at oral argument, the panel asked the university's lawyer a series of questions about whether specific statements would violate the discriminatory harassment policy. And even he wasn't sure. They, they said, okay, would the statement abortion is immoral fall under this policy? And he basically said, well, to me, it doesn't seem like it would, but I couldn't say for sure because the university would consider all the facts and circumstances. So that's also giving too much discretion right. to the university, not just being overbroad, right? Exactly. Yeah. And being vague, unconstitutionally When vague. it comes into that, like you were saying, the, the argument in the billboard case where they were saying, well... They have to they have to read the billboard to figure out what it says, which an oversimplified argument on that point. But this is is that same issue where the the university is going to have to look at, OK, what did this person say? Who did they say it to? And and the, the content very, very much matters under this policy. And the, the court concluded that if the university's own attorney couldn't tell whether a particular statement would violate the policy, students probably can't either. And so it has this chilling effect that we often talk about in First Amendment cases, where if a, if a regulation or a policy from some sort of government entity like a public university makes people afraid to speak whatever it is they want to speak about, 
that's going to be a First Amendment problem. Which I think leads to the next case. Sure does. The not at all divisive subject of prayer in public (laughs) prayer at public schools. (laughs) So last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case involving Joe Kennedy. He He is a practicing Christian and he was an assistant football coach at Bremerton High School in the Seattle area. He became known for after games, he would essentially go out to the 50-yard line, take a knee, say a quick prayer. This went on for a while, for several uh, seasons, kind of essentially unnoticed by the school, uh, school administrators. But over time, players, including players and coaches from opposing schools, began to uh, join him as just kind of a little post-game ritual. On their on their own, he, did, he wasn't like inviting them to join or anything. He was just doing it himself. Yeah, it became like a where people maybe asked if they could join. And- Which is different than him being yeah. like, who wants to pray with yep. me, right? And then what happened was an opposing school praised Kennedy's uh, school board for Bremerton High School for allowing Kennedy to do this, basically saying like, wow, so good of you guys to actually allow him to do this. At which point the, the oh, at no. which point the school board was like, wait, what's happening? Oh, oh no. <laughs> it's like, oh, they were trying to be nice. But this is why I'm not nice to people, because it always just comes back to bite you. <laughs> They essentially became worried that they would be seen as complicit in violating the separation of church and state and worried that they would be seen as condoning this practice on school property that would be not in their eyes. They were not interfering with Kennedy's free exercise to practice his religious faith. Mm -hmm. They were protecting themselves from being seen to establish an official religious view to protect their students, which they view that they have an obligation to protect their students from that. At which point they tried to f- uh, negotiate with Kennedy to find a private location for him to pray, they tried to talk him into waiting until spectators left. And this is where I'm sympathetic to this football coach here. It seemed like something grew beyond what he originally anticipated it to be but then you get a little nip of that culture war catnip and you just and you get a little bit of fame you just can't (laughs) resist so the spectacle began to grow including state legislatures would join him on the field state legislators sorry not not entire legislatures (laughs) Um, more students would kind of like rush the field he would start to do things like where he would hold up helmets of the two teams and pray vocally instead of what he was doing, which was taking a knee like Tim Tebow always would when he scored a touchdown and like silent prayer. Which is was different because he's in a position of power. Mm-hmm. He's a yes, coach, he's not a correct. And so eventually he was put on paid leave. And then the following season, he did not reapply for his job after the school board suggested they were not going to renew his contract. And then he sued basically that they were that they were violating his free exercise rights to practice his religion. And Paul Clement, his lawyer, Paul Clement, former solicitor general, um, argued that this was entirely his own expression and was doubly protected by under free speech and free exercise clauses because that the government does not endorse all private religious speech just because that speech happened to occur on school grounds. However, you know, the school's argument is we're not telling him he can't be a Christian. We weren't telling him that he can't pray quietly. 
the school's lawyer in the Supreme Court argument even said, even made the argument that, you know, we wouldn't stop a teacher from praying silently at their desk, even if they're, even if all the students in the classroom could see them. What they kept contending was when he started to make it, when Kennedy started to essentially try to make it more of a spectacle was when they felt like they had to step in because they couldn't, because they wouldn't want students to feel coerced into having mm-hmm. to join. That's a different direction from where I thought this was going. I was talking to a buddy of mine who played soccer growing up a lot, and he had a coach that would invite, that would pray and invite any pl- prayers on his team he wanted to pray with. Oh, him. Y- and he yeah. felt compelled to, well, he felt like that was putting a lot of pressure on him, who he wasn't religious at all, to p- pretend to pray, otherwise get like benched or some kind of negative repercussion. But that's not the case here. The students, I don't know where the students stand on this, but they're not the ones suing. Correct. I went to a public school my whole life um, in a small town and praying, um, my friends who were on the football team and stuff, they would pray in the locker room together at a public school and all that stuff. And we played Silent Night at the Christmas band concert and Mm -hmm. (laughs) away in a manger and all that (laughs) stuff. But that's the argument that Elena Kagan made during arguments last week. She said, basically, it seems to me to be coercive of 16-year-olds, regardless if they know that it's him, that it's him, meaning the coach, and not the school district. He's the one who's going to give me an, an A or not, or in this case, playing time. Mm-hmm. You know, She was making the argument that player on the team who would be worried that they might get benched. Exactly what your friend was saying. And my follow-up would be, is it a reasonable fear or not that you would get a consequence? for not participating. Yeah. And so that was the argument that that kind of the liberal justices were making, but then it was kind of acknowledged by all these part all the parties in the arguments that that this case is really a like trying to figure out whose set of facts to use because uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Thomas were all pretty, and and even uh, Roberts, and I think everybody all knows, given the ideological makeup of the court, which way they're going to go on this. Um, but but the conservative justices were really focused on whether what the school did was reasonable in trying to restrict the coach. Brett Kavanaugh asked the school's lawyer, like, what about a coach who makes uh, the sign of the cross before a game? which the school lawyer said that would be perfectly fine if he, while while not making himself the center of attention at the center of the field, it's perfectly fine, to which Kavanaugh replied, I don't know how we could write an opinion that would draw a line based on not making yourself the center of attention as the coach of a game. And that goes to the narrowly tailored requirement that a law has to meet if it's not, you know, here it's clearly not content neutral. Yeah, and so this and the school saying, well, we were trying to keep football games content neutral or whatever to, to a certain degree. But I, I will note, sorry, I kind of glossed over this earlier, that uh, a district court and the Ninth Circuit both sided with the school district. This case has kind of gotten the ire of some liberal law professors, too, because both the district court and the Ninth Circuit both sided with the school district. There is no real split matter between the circuits and all that. And... Uh, the court is kind of being essentially being accused of taking this up as a, a culture war cudgel. The SCOTUS conservatives kind of grilled the school district on this, right? In, in oral arguments. Yep. Yeah. And this case apparently attracted more um, friend of the court briefs than any other case this term, with the exception of the cases involving abortion and gun control. 
<laughs> so. <laughs> well, and in the last like 10 years or so, we've definitely, I know Joe has, Joe's not here, but I'll give him a plug anyway. I know Joe has written quite a bit about how in the last 10 years or so, the Supreme Court has tended to side with, when it comes to religious freedom disputes, they tend to side with the religious entity, or I guess in this case, the individual. Yeah, a related case for your homework or reading assignment is <laughs> 1992's Levy Weissman, in which um, the f- uh, in a five to four court ruled that a public high school in Rhode Island could not essentially have a prayer at the beginning of a graduation ceremony. They ruled that even though the students essentially could have, in effect, skipped the ceremony and received their diplomas by mail instead if they didn't want to be you know, coerced into this prayer, that was um, improper. But that, that makes sense because it's not implicating anyone's uh, freedom of speech rights, which, and freedom of exercise. But here, you know, clearly... Clearly, freedom of exercise of the coach and his freedom of speech, you can argue, is implicated. And those freedoms are butting heads with students' freedom from the establishment of a religion. So it's two different, it's three different First Amendment (laughs) rights that are all butting heads. Yeah, well, and free speech and free exercise, unsurprisingly, will come together in a lot of cases. Because you can almost argue, almost always argue that your freedom of religion is a freedom of speech Mm -hmm. if you want to express it. Yeah. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.